Jack Harkness, bless his heart, is a terrible manager. A while back in Radio Free Scarrow episode 260, Stephen Shabansky interviewed Graham Burke and Robert Smith question mark about their new collection of essays, Time Unincorporated 3 from Mad Norwegian Press, and the contentious section therein on Torchwood. You have people who are sort of, we have an essay um, by Lynn Thomas that talks about how much she loves Torchwood Season 1 and thinks it's so great, and then you have an essay by me that says that Cyberwoman is possibly the greatest affront to humanity ever made, and should be should be brought up for war crimes, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, so I think so. I think there's, I think there's a great, great sort of uh, a great sort of spectrum of, of views on the, on the, on the show, which is which is very interesting. I think just as there is about the show within Doctor Who canon, and most of the articles uh, were written before Children's Earth too. Um, which is a shame, really, because that's what Torture got really good. I imagine you'd get you would have got some really interesting articles. Well, that's pretty much conventional wisdom among most of the podcasting set. Witness the recent Radio Free Scarrow 265. Uh, because, uh, you know, okay, it's not as good as the Children of Earth, but it's certainly a hell of a lot better than the first two seasons. Oh, God, so, yes. And so, nothing, nothing is ever going to top Children of Earth for Torchwood. I mean, no, the, that, that, that bar has been set. It's not going not to get reached again just because... And this is, and this is different anyway. Like, it's just a little more lighthearted without being stupid like the first two seasons were. So can yeah. I say again how terrible the first two seasons were, with notable exceptions? But darn it, even though I didn't think it was the best television ever, I did enjoy Torchwood Series 1, and a lot of people who haven't seen it ought to give it a fair shake. So, on today's Time Dilation edition of the Two Minute Time Lord podcast, I'm bringing in the aforementioned Lynn Thomas, Counsel for the Defense, of Torchwood Series 1. That's coming up right after today's two-minute review of Torchwood Miracle Day, Episode 4, Escape to L.A., which, if you haven't seen it yet and don't want to be spoiled, just fast-forward a couple of minutes until you hear the Torchwood theme music. I'm Chip, and welcome to Two Minute Time Lord Podcast, Episode 225. And now the world of Miracle Day is being built. The plague ship hospitals and camps are being erected. Give a strange kind of credit to the new post-human race. Its governments haven't been idly waiting for the crisis to come. They've been anticipating it, and in Episode 4, Escape to L.A., the process of building a new world order is underway. This episode is the most like Children of Earth yet. The central question of Miracle Day is not, in fact, what would happen if no one died? It's, what would people do if no one could die? And that's just like the previous miniseries exploration of how governments would react to the four or five sixes harvesting of children. Not coincidentally, these similarities lead to some of the most uncomfortable moments in Miracle Day thus far. Two things are happening here. We've got the foundations for oppressive governmental structures being placed, and we see the human costs of these structures in grim, personal detail. The hardest for me was Esther's nieces, whom we, crucially, never see, locked away in a house with a mentally ill parent. This is real. This happens in our own neighborhoods today. And bless writers Jim Gray and John Scheiben for having Esther make the hard decision to intervene though the uncertainty after that is equally heartbreaking. 
Gwen clinging to her lifeline with Reese, and Rex's attempted rapprochement with his father also highlight both their characters' isolation and the human costs of the New World Order. Take that, the increasingly overt conspiracy moving against Torchwood with a knife's edge, the sight of an anti-Messianic Oswald Danes holding a baby girl, and the ghastly elimination of Danes' rival, and there's something to disturb every viewer. After this episode, I rewatched, of all things, the premiere of the rebooted Thundercats cartoon as a palate cleanser. That's the first time I was moved to do such a thing. Episode 4 was a strong story, conspicuous black-suited assassins on L.A. beaches aside, but it was also the first Miracle Day episode to evoke the anxiety and discomfort of its predecessor miniseries. There may be a lot more shiny, happy, escapist fluff in my post-Miracle Day watching future, because it looks like the horror's about to begin. Joining me on uh, Skype for this uh, time dilation edition of the Two Minute Time Lord podcast is Lynn M. Thomas. Uh, she's been on the Two Minute Time Lord podcast before, talking about the wonderful Chicks Dig Time Lords, and also, I believe, a few words about Weedonistas were out there. Lynn, are you doing all right? I am. Thank you, Chip. How are you? I'm great. Now, for those who have been criticizing Torchwood Miracle Day, I've been hearing here and there phrases such as, oh, it's back to the old Torchwood. And that made me think of your uh, recent essay in the collection Time Unincorporated 3, where you did the unthinkable. You defended Torchwood Series 1. Yes, I did. So uh, so I'm thinking you think that's a series worth defending, huh? I do. Um, actually, it's funny. When I was approached to write for Time Unincorporated 3... Um, you know, I was sort of, uh, Robert and Graham sort of were like, well, we'd like you to write something, you know, and, and my thinking was, well, I'm going to volunteer for the Torchwood season one essay because ain't no one else going to do it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I seriously thought that, that I would be one of the few humans on the planet who really thinks that Torchwood's first season is worth defending because I had heard, you know, at conventions, so many people, particularly after Children of Earth broadcast, um, say, well, you know, Children of Earth was brilliant, but the first two seasons are kind of crap. And I never felt that way at all. In fact, after, you know, I'm, I'm the opposite. I love the first two seasons of Torchwood. Um, and I liked Children of Earth, and I thought it was very well done. But I looked at my husband after we watched it, and I said, this was brilliant. It's not Torchwood. Um, it just, hmm. it didn't feel right to me. Um, because what Torchwood morphed into in its first season was something that I came to love very, very deeply. Um, and you know, the, the aspects of the first season that I loved so much were many aspects of that were missing from children of earth. Now I haven't seen miracle day yet, so I'm still reserving judgment until I've had a chance to see it. But you know, the fact that people are complaining that, uh, that it has gone back to first to, to the old Torchwood actually gives me great hope. <laughs> it makes me happy. <laughs> well, I think that was the, I, I think the, the conventional wisdom about Children of Earth is, in a lot of sectors, including some of my fellow podcasters, you know, that was when Torchwood started getting good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I disagree. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there seems to be uh, among the Torchwood fans, and I, th I still think, I don't, I'm, 
I'm maybe a little fuzzy on actual rating numbers, but I do think that there was more buzz and energy in terms of cult fandom for Torchwood than Doctor Who in America yes. uh, up until yes. up until uh, Doctor Who got onto BBC America. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But there's something... What is it about the difference in tone that makes some people just embrace Ch- Children of Earth as Torchwood done right and others as not Torchwood? Well, I think that the, the big difference to, in, to my mind is the level of camp that you have in Torchwood uh, in its first two seasons, but particularly in season one, as opposed to uh, Children of Earth. One of the, the interesting things about Torchwood, I think, is that from the production side, what you have is a series that's created by Russell T. Davis um, in conjunction with Chris Chibnall. And, and the the the, the charges often leveraged at the first series of Torchwood are that it's horribly uneven. And, you know, to a certain degree that's true, as with any first series of any television show, as um, as the, the showrunners and the cast and crew all sort of get their feet and figure out what the tone of the series that they're creating mm-hmm. is and what exactly they're doing. I mean, you can look at the first season of Buffy, you can look at the first season of Xena Warrior Princess, you can look at the first season of pretty much any televised series that went more than one season. Oh, yeah. And, and you'll see that, that it, you know, even the, fir- the very first series of Doctor Who, the, doc- the William Hartnell Doctor Who, you know, it's, it's kind of all over the place to a certain degree. They're trying to figure out what the show is and it doesn't become what we think of as proper Doctor Who until almost the third season of, of William Hartnell's run. So you know it's it's important to remember that that variation in tone is something that happens to nearly every television show, particularly the ambitious ones. Yeah, um, and, and there's something about there's something that I always love about seeing those uh, first seasons of these shows. And, you know, the unevenness, but the experimental nature as you're yes. trying to figure out what's going on. Exactly. And then when you get on, let's look at, uh, say, Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, sure. which almost no one would hold up its first season as mm-hmm. uh, great television. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this uh, stretch then between seasons, say, three through five or something like that, where that show knows exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And it almost fall, and, and it executes that perfectly, and that's widely considered the high point of the series. Right. And yet, it's following the format so closely that it's almost formula. You know, it mm-hmm. is what it sure. is, and it will not change. Yes, and and that's why you know that's what in some ways that's what makes TNG so soothing to watch as a series because the characters are eternal; they never change. You know, you can have horrible things happening to to Riker or Data or any other given character. Character, and for the most part, you go to a different random episode, and they're the same people. Uh, they don't tend to evolve in in very specified archy ways. Um, it tends to be very sort of self contained. This is absolutely and, not the case for Torchwood series no, one. Absolutely not. Torchwood series one. I think of it as I think of it as a roller coaster, um, and you know. But you know, there are people who are merry-go-round people, and there are people who are roller coaster people. And I'm a roller coaster person. You know, I I love the fact that that in the first series of Torchwood, um, you know, in my essay, I I I, I don't want to sit here and quote myself, but I talked about how the first series of Torchwood to me was just completely unpredictable. Now, you know, it, it's possible to leverage the charge that I'm just not as deeply steeped in SF tropes as other viewers might have been and therefore was more easily surprised. I suppose that could be true. That um, could also be a fairly elitist argument, but it, it, it could be. Um, but, but my feeling is that, you know, 
what Torchwood did in its first series that I thought was really, really brilliant was that it undercut so many of the tropes that it was attempting to execute, um, either on purpose or inadvertently, um, that it became something completely different. And I argue in my essay that basically it made up its own genre and it became something completely different, a, a new kind of a new kind of show. It's sort of like being a new kind of Bond girl. What I love about Torchwood was that I have never sat through a television series where at, at, you know, at, at the end of act breaks and at the end of the episode, I'm screaming at the television, I cannot believe they just did that. <laughs> now, it, you know, it, it, the disbelief comes in several different flavors from a facepalm to a screaming fist pump, yes. But I'm always surprised. I'm never bored watching the first series of Torchwood because every time things start to go in a direction where I think, oh, I know what's going to happen next – my expectations are completely subverted. And I love that about this series. It just, it takes chances. And, and narratively speaking, taking chances is something I deeply respect, even when those chances don't work out very well in the execution. Okay, so taking chances, uh, being experimental, what yes. other people might call being inconsistent. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's, some, there's, something, there's something glorious about trying new things and seeing what works uh, yes. for its own sake. Let's also take a look at some of the other qualities that Torchwood Series 1 has that uh, people might be forgetting. You okay. talk about something in your essay called Camp Noir. Yes. What is um, Camp Noir? <laughs> well, okay. The way that I defined it, um, sort of, okay. Camp Noir, for me, is, um, well, I coined the term for Torchwood, because what it is, is it starts off thinking it's a science fiction noir show, much like Angel. And I have often joked on panels that the first three episodes of Torchwood um, share a certain amount of homage with the very first, the very, the three very first episodes of Angel, um, down to the, the sexually transmitted monster, um, you know, and the standing on rooftops with the big swoopy coat and brooding thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of homage going on there. And that makes a certain amount of sense because Angel is a noir kind of series. You have people who are in a world where moral uh, certainty is difficult to come by. Characters are gray. Everything ends in death. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing, but there's a certain amount of style to that. It's very dark. It's very rainy. It's very urban. It's, it's very, um, stylish in the sense of like noir, noir film, um, and, you know, 1940s, uh, Bogart kinds of things. Um, so, so it has that noir aspect to it and it certainly, you know, it's, it's trying to make Cardiff noir, which in and of itself, I think is a bit of an achievement. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on how urban Cardiff really, truly is. And urban, of course, by, by Welsh standards, is going to be different than, say, people who live in New York City who would look at Cardiff and go, really? You think that's urban? <laughs> um, you know, I live in a small town now. So to me, Cardiff is urban compared to where I live. But uh, it's all a matter of relativity. But there's this emphasis on, on the, the notion of noir, that, that, you know, Jack is someone who has seen so many people die and he has, he has seen so much horrible stuff as, as a member of Torchwood. I mean, he's seen his own team die repeatedly. You know, the what was the average age for, for Torchwood operatives? They died at like 28. I mean, it's just, you know, this is a dark, dark setup. And then what happens is that they consistently end up undermining that dark sentiment, that dark setup with camp. Um, and camp, basically, the, the rough definition that I use in the essay is... Um, the queer community, meaning, meaning gays, lesbians, bisexuals, transgender folk, um, people who do not identify as, as, as heterosexual, mm -hmm. um, satirizing heterosexual culture 
through exaggeration. So, you know, you think of things like drag queens as being very camp because it's a very exaggerated over over the top version of femininity that is an attempt to demonstrate some of the silliness about the rules about femininity in heterosexual culture. So it's that sort of idea. So um, let me let let me pull an example and see if this uh, fits with what you're saying. That scene early on when uh, Gwen is receiving handgun training from Jack mm-hmm. is that Camp Noir. Yes, it is. Um, because what you have is a, a scene where, okay, it is not an unusual thing to tie sexuality to violence at all in our culture. Um, but to film it with a soft, to film that, that gun education scene with the, with the, you know, in the slow motion with the soft color lens and the waka waka music. I mean, basically they are turning a gun training session into a porn film. (laughs) And by doing that, what they are doing is they are taking that concept of sexuality mixed with violence that, that Gwen would be actually sort of be kind of turned on by using a gun, which, you know, as a, as a cop, um, if I'm not mistaken, you know, beat cops weren't, aren't issued, weapons like they're not they don't carry guns typically in the way they do in the u.s over in the uk i could be wrong but my understanding is that gwen would not be using a gun as a beat cop typically um in her police job so this is something new for her this is something that is you know for jack it's second nature now because well he's an ex-time agent and spent plenty of time fighting wars he's been a soldier his his you know several times over this is this is nothing new for him but for him to transfer that knowledge becomes a physical transfer and it becomes um essentially a sexual transfer in a very over the top sort of way. I mean, it's just, it, most of the time that sort of thing is done in a relatively subtle manner. It's not, you know, it, it's, it's never sort of this big sign saying the gun is your penis. The gun is your penis. But that's, I can't believe I just said that, but, <laughs> but I may but, be bleeping that you, you may, but, but the, the gun is, is, is the gun as a, a extension of male sexuality. Um, there's a better way to phrase it, uh, is, is something that we see in popular culture all the time, but to take that and actually make it manifest so that it physically, that Gwen is getting turned on by handling the guns. That's what makes it camp. It takes it over the top. It, It basically takes it to 11 as it were. Or even beyond, you know. Or even beyond, they're at about fifteen half. They, the they really so, are because if yeah. I, I think I think for a, I think for a lot of people who don't have a lot of patience for uh, camp and exaggeration, mm-hmm. they see that scene and they say, "Oh my God, they're just going overboard with that." Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then, but, but, and and then there's Lynn Thomas saying, "Wow, yay, they're going overboard awesome. with that." <laughs> wow, they went overboard with it, and I love it. Yeah, you're not you, you're not watching it, and you're not watching it and believing that they're playing it straight. No, because well, part of the problem is okay. Part of the issue, I think, is that um, I think that in a lot of our popular cultural consumption, there is this notion that things that are dark are automatically better. So, if you look at the different versions of the Batman franchise, there's this notion that say. Um, Batman, the Brave and the Bold, which has a fair amount of comedy in it, has far less cultural value or is not as good, quote unquote, as the Dark Knight. Now, you know, again, apples to oranges, cartoon to live action film, very different tone, very different type of thing. But um, I am someone who doesn't think that we have to automatically privilege dark storytelling as being better. I think there's I think that what has come out of 
sort of the Alan Moore questioning of how we handle things like superheroes in the 1990s is that there, there, there gets to be a shortcut. You know, Alan Moore wrote, uh, wrote um, Watchmen as a cautionary tale. And what ended up happening was a whole lot of other comics aped Watchmen. And he, and he sort of spent some time looking around going, wait, what are you talking about? This was supposed to be a warning, not a template. Um, and so I think that what tends to happen is that you get these, this notion that dark, dark automatically means it's better. Um, that mean that by making always the dark choice, it's better. It means, you know, it therefore has more cultural impact, more, more emotional importance. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. It's not that I have anything against dark humor. I mean, goodness knows, you know, I, I enjoy gallows humor from time to time myself and it's not, I don't think it's an issue for me necessarily. I just don't default to automatically saying that only dark and unrelenting dark and it must be dark and that is what makes it good. So if you're one of those people who thinks that dark automatically equals better, and then you start watching Torchwood and you're expecting because of this noir setup that there's going to be dark, 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 dark. And then there's this pterodactyl attacking a cyber woman. You're going to look at that and be like, because of barbecue sauce, because of barbecue sauce, you're going to look at that and go, what is this? Whereas I look at that and I think, wow, it's performance art. You know, it, it's, I think that's brilliant because it completely subverts the entire expectation that you have without actually breaking the frame of the story. Within the frame of the story, Mifanwi's attack on, on Lisa works. It does what it's supposed to do. And Mifanwi's already been set up. You know, she, that's the name of the pterodactyl. She's already been set up as liking barbecue sauce and as, as being around Torchwood. So it's perfectly reasonable to leverage the asset you have, as Jack Harkness does, to try to help his team. We've basically surrounded pretty much the... Uh... The, the center point of your essay in Time Unincorporated, um, okay. the uh, a, the adoration of uh, Camp Noir. Uh, yes. But there, there are other things to recommend uh, Torchwood Series 1, and I would like to uh, just touch on them real quick before we go. Sure. Um, one of the things that I enjoy about it is that this is a really fractured... Uh, it's not quite a team of uh, people that wouldn't be out of place in the nerd core of the National Security Agency in Washington or something like that. These are um, these are weird, sort of semi-broken people who don't mm -hmm. get along very well with each other. Yeah, and I the, mean, the character interplay is just really fascinating to me. One of the things I love about Torchwood is that you have basically, um, again, the expectation is, well, they're Torchwood. They're a top, you know, they're a top secret agency they're you know they're above the police they must be really good at what they do you know these are all you know crack agents who know exactly what they're doing no they're terrible at their jobs jack harkness bless his heart is a terrible manager he is not a good leader he works really really well as a snarky sidekick which is why it's so much fun to watch him when he's tagging along with the doctor but he's a terrible leader he doesn't know how to inspire people. He doesn't know how to get people to work together. He just flirts with them until they do what he wants. It's not the same thing. It's not, you know, his, his leadership methods are terrible. And, and, you know, as a, and, and this is something that he's had a hundred years to develop and his team keeps getting killed before he can manage to become good at being a leader. Um, you know, it's, his management style is awful. And because of that, you know, at the end of season one, when he leaves and then Gwen takes over, you see that Gwen is actually a natural leader. She's really good at it. 
Um, and you know, Jack comes back to see that in series two, but, but in series one, you have this group of people, they're deeply fractured and every single one of them is broken. And they're all kind of, you know, they're all kind of sort of leftovers. These are people who, who, with the exception of Gwen, who just saw too much one day and Jack took a shine to her. These are all people who in one way or another wouldn't fit anywhere else. They're essentially, it's like the Island of misfit toys for, for, you know, super spies kind of thing. Um, they just, they don't fit elsewise. But that's what makes them perfect for Torchwood. You know, Jack selects people who don't quite fit elsewise because he doesn't quite fit elsewise, which means they'll take his weird stuff in stride, ostensibly. Owen is a really dark character throughout the whole run, um, yes. sort of up up until the up until the very end uh, end of his undeath. Mm-hmm. Um, he is not a gentleman. He's not nice, and no. he treats other people on the team extremely poorly. Mm-hmm. And yet he is a compelling character. Yes, that's actually what makes him compelling, is, the, is that he is so thoroughly and utterly broken. Um, and, you know, I think that it's what I find interesting about Owen is seeing someone that thoroughly broken who is still to a certain degree functional. I mean, he's still a somewhat competent doctor. He's still a an integral part of the Torchwood team for all that is worth. Um, you know, he still tries to go through the motions of going out to clubs and, and, you know, getting laid, but there's nothing in there. I mean, the reason that he can't ever be with Tosh is not because he doesn't think Tosh is attractive. It's because he, he knows he's so thoroughly and utterly broken that he would, he would completely destroy her too. And, and I actually think that it's a testament of how he has learned about himself through being in Torchwood that he, I mean, yeah, it takes away Tosh's agency for him to say, no, this is just not going to happen. Um, you know, Tosh isn't really given a choice because Owen takes the choice from her. But, you know, in his mind, he's doing it for her own good. And that may be the first time he has made an unselfish choice in a very, very long time, even if it's a choice that takes away some agency from Tosh, um, because he knows he's bad for her. You know, he knows that, that there's no way this is not going to be a situation in which a good woman makes a, a, a broken man better. You know, this is not going to be Rose and the doctor. This is going to be a situation in which a thoroughly broken man ends up breaking someone he thought he might be able to care about. Mm -hmm. And so much like Batman, he just pushes away people he cares about so that they don't get hurt in his eyes. Right. So in building our defense for Torchwood Series 1, we've hit uh, the experimental nature of the show. Mm -hmm. We've hit Camp Noir, which is something that you see almost nowhere else. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the really wide range of characterization um Mm -hmm. you know it's a it's it's a it's a fundamental character drama uh with characters in various stages of brokenness having Mm -hmm. to work together yeah is there anything else that somebody who's dismissed torchwood uh series one who thinks that children of earth was the be all and end all and is presumably enjoying Miracle Day, although they're seeing some of this other stuff come back. Is there anything else that you would say is something that they should consider in giving Torchwood a chance? One of the things that I would also argue that we should consider is the queerness of Torchwood. What I find truly compelling about Torchwood is that it is a show that is decidedly queer from beginning to end. All of the characters are at least nominally bisexual or queer in some way. The relationship that is privileged in story as the serious, important relationship is a gay relationship between Jack and Yanto. Gwen and Reese, bless them, are lovely, and they are played for comedy. They are not played for drama. 
and Gwen and Reese's relationship in many ways is more broken than Jack and Yanto's because Gwen cheats on Reese and then retcons him after telling him about it to try to, you know, that that's what she she just, yeah, I'll just erase his memory. Which is an Not, awful it's and an awful entirely believable scene. Yeah, it's 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 a horrible thing to do. It, it's it's a demonstration of Gwen's moral compass wavering quite a bit. Um, and what you have with Jack and Yanto is a certain level of honesty about you know, their relationship where they're not, you know, they're not necessarily exclusive and they're both aware of that and more or less okay with it. And, you know, there's, there's a scene, um, in Captain, you know, Yanto knows that Jack kisses Captain Jack Harkness in, in the episode, Captain Jack Harkness and Yanto, and he says it was for work and Yanto goes, okay, fine, whatever. Um, you know, Jack and Yanto is in many, it is the privileged relationship in the series. Um, and it is a loving relationship. And I'm not saying that Gwen and Reese aren't loving. They absolutely are. In fact, it's, it's wonderful to see a spectrum of loving relationships and a spectrum of dysfunctional relationships. Because, you know, as much as you have Jack and Yanto and you have Gwen and Reese, you also have Owen and everyone else. Because Owen can't function within a relationship at all. He falls terribly in love with Diane and then she rips him to shreds. You know, he can't let himself get close to Tosh. Tosh can't get close to anyone. Um, she's she's basically incapable of having a healthy relationship with a woman or a man. You know, her choices are so far the, the alien in Greeks bearing gifts and then Tommy, um, you know, from um, the second season. It's just, you know, it's these are people who are adults. And what I find fascinating about Torchwood is that they are having a very typical adult reaction to a very dark universe. What people do in crises are several things. Sometimes they sort of roll up in a ball and they hide. Sometimes they, you know, they decide they're going to fight back and be heroic. And sometimes they think that the most life-affirming thing they can do is shag like bunnies. Um, and I think that Torchwood embraces that. And it's something that you don't see very often on television. Um, and it's a very matter-of-fact sort of queerness. It's not that Jack wanders around going, look at me, I'm queer. You know, and it's not that Yanto wanders around going, look at me, I'm in love with a guy and I didn't expect that. Um, it just happens. They just are people who fall in love with one another. And, and to me, um, having that out in the world is a very valuable thing. And, you know, as someone who identifies as bisexual, just seeing bisexuals on screen on a regular basis is a really important and oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not ratifying. It's, it's a, it's a reifying thing. It's a, it's a, it's reassuring to, to be visible because that's not something that happens mm -hmm. in our culture very typically. And when you see particularly women who are bisexual um, in, in popular culture, you know, it, it's usually, Oh boy, we get to be the serial killers. You know, we're, we're usually either, we're either sluts or serial killers. Those are sort of the two bog standard depictions of bisexual women. Um, you know, if you look at things like, um, well, the serial killer thing, I'm thinking specifically of, um, oh, what's basic it called? Instinct. The basic instinct. Thank you. Yeah. The Sharon Stone film or, or it's the, you know, oh, I'm it's, it, it's the, the, the fake porn bisexual who is only, who is only, you know, having, having sex with women in order to titillate some man who happens to be present. And that's not necessarily how every person who identifies as bisexual experiences life. They just fall in love with people and the gender of those people is not irrelevant per se, but it's not the sole deciding factor in the same way that, you know, a, a, someone who is heterosexual, who, who is interested in women, isn't interested, you know, a, a straight guy is not going to be attracted to every single woman he meets. 
Um, and a straight woman is not going to be attracted to every single man she meets. You know, Jack Harkness, bless his heart, because he's attracted to every single person he meets, you know, species is, is unimportant. Right. He's the, ult- he's the ultimate sort of camp version of the, the, the faux pop cultural bisexual. Because he literally will shag anything with a hole. Bless his heart. Um, you know, but, he, but because he does that, it, it becomes a very endearing quality in him. And it normalizes everybody else who's having a slightly more humanistic, typical experience, whether it's minor experimentation or full-on bisexuality or being gay or being straight. Um, you know, there aren't any transgender folks really that show up in Torchwood, which is kind of a shame. But, um, you know, any kind of visibility for sexuality that is not... The, the quote-unquote cultural norm, which is heterosexuality, is refreshing to those of us that don't adhere to it. And that probably, and we we won't get into uh, we won't get into the Ianto controversy here, I don't think. But uh, that probably. Well, I mean, I can I can give you my theory as to why it happened. I think I think um, you just uh, I think you just uh, built much of that theory right then in that uh, I, I, last bit I of conversation. Did. Um, my feeling about Ianto is, you know, it's sad that he had to die. And I mourned him like everybody else did. Um, you know, I, I, that was that was devastating. But it had to be, from a storytelling perspective, in my opinion, Yanto had to die because the because the story of Children of Earth is not Yanto's story; it's Jack's story. And when you're telling Jack's story and you are trying to to literally strip away everything that he cares about, that includes Yanto. Um, and when when you do that, if, if you know, I mean, basically, he got in the comics industry, you know, the comics fandom, it, he would be fridged. You know, he's he's killed specifically to to progress Jack's character, right. which is it's not ideal. But I understand from a storytelling perspective why it happened. I think that I was happy with with how it happened in the sense that it was Yanto at least attempting to be heroic. He's going to stand right next to Jack and be here with him, and it's not. You know, it's a stupid way to die in the sense of it's, a, you know, any death as part of Torchwood is stupid. But then again, if we remember, the median age of survival in Torchwood is about 28. So Yanto was right in line with the history of Torchwood as an organization. The fact that he survived Canary Wharf and actually managed to move on to Torchwood Cardiff is a miracle in and of itself. And the fact that his death was a central part of that episode and was the central emotional beat of that episode, shows how they're actually privileging Jack and Yanto's relationship in the storytelling. This is not something that they were going to do with Gwen and Reese. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, and, and it's funny because the fact that Reese survived all the way through Children of Earth actually is yet another attempt, or yet, yet another example of how they have subverted tropes that you expect to happen. Because like when Reese shows up as a recurring character, my first instinct is they're going to kill him to progress Gwen at some point. Like we, we had a pool in the household as to when Reese was going to bite it. You know, right. it was just, it he was, was just, he was just screaming was, red shirt. Yeah, exactly. And the, the fact that he has survived this long actually is another example of, of how Torchwood subverts what we expect. And I think that's just wonderful. Now at the beginning of series two, the very first scene that we get uh, before the credits roll is a car chase with a convertible being driven by a human blowfish. Blow yes, and the and the, the the super secret Torchwood SUV pulling up and, and asking the little old lady if they saw the blowfish. Yes, um, it seemed to me that after all of the decision making and the experimenting that they were trying to do at during series one. 
that in Torchwood Series 2, they decided, yeah, that's who we are. We're Camp Noir. We, tr- we tried all these different things. That's that's who we are. We're, th- we're a show that can have really serious stuff going on, and yet we've got a blowfish driving a convertible, and we've got a wonderful episode featuring a 24-hour pregnant Gwen trying to get married. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. That's I, I the th- that's the sort of show that Torchwood Series One fans uh, embraced. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and you know I'm like I said, the first two series of Torchwood are my favorites. I I enjoyed and respect Children of Earth, and I'm really looking forward to watching Miracle Day because I'm a fan of the series in general. Um, and and you know anytime I get more Captain Jack and company, the hap- you know, I, I, and I love Gwen so hard. I am not one of those fans that hates Gwen. I think Gwen is fantastic. Um, so, you know, I'm looking forward to more Torchwood because my reaction to Torchwood is, yes, please, more. I would like more. Um, you know, I don't... Th- the concept of Camp Noir is something where I think, you know, for some people it's a bug and for some people it's a feature. For me, the incorporation of camp into the storytelling, of being willing to sort of take the mickey out of the seriousness of your story, of being willing to take chances narratively and do things that are just silly for the sake of silly and and seeing how you can fit that into the storytelling and get away with it i think that is brilliant and for me that is a feature but there are going to be people for whom um that camp element that camp aspect is going to throw them out of the story because they want straightforward more linear more serious storytelling and if that's the case those are going to be the folks that prefer children of earth and that's that's cool you know i i i I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, I don't like it when people harsh my squee about the first series of Torchwood, and I'm not going to harsh anyone else's squee about Children of Earth or other series that, that, you know, they like and I don't. For instance, I can't get through Battlestar Galactica. For me, it's too unrelentingly dark, and I just, I just, but I just, I got to the point after about three episodes where I was like, this is just not for me, and that's okay, you know, and I think for me, the, the key thing is respecting that, you know, it's a wide world of television out there and there's a lot to choose from. And it's, that's cool. You know, you don't have to like everything, but you know, it's also important to respect that other people will like different things and that doesn't make them wrong. It just means that they have a different opinion and that's okay. Lynn, this was a great conversation about a show that I really liked and that a lot of people did and that some people just don't get I really do appreciate your time with me on this. It's uh, my pleasure. Now, uh, your essay was in Time Un- Unincorporated 3, which That's is correct. a great collection of fanzine-type essays covering New Who from 2005 on. That's right. Edited by Robert Smith and Graham Burke, published by Mad Norwegian Press. And I commend it to everybody who's listening. Thanks so Yay. much. Hey, thank you, Chip. that brings to a close the time dilation edition of two minute time lord podcast number 225 one last little plug check out the sf squee cast featuring lynn thomas as well as several other luminaries in the science fiction fantasy world including doctor who writer paul cornell as they celebrate science fiction in all its forms thanks for listening to the two minute time lord podcast which you can find more episodes off at twominutetimelord.com